Alan J. Alonzo Wind, today's guest, is the author of Andean Adventures, a memoir about his experiences in the Peace Corps, NGOs, and working for USAID in South America. He'll also share insights about his superpower and optimistic outlook on life. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. Alan, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's just a, a thrill to get to know you uh, a little bit uh, from reading about you and reading a bit of your book. And now, uh, thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, really an honor to be invited to have a chance to share some, uh, uh, kick around some different ideas and experiences. Oh, yeah. Y- you have done some amazing things. And uh, and you, you've written a memoir a, a, about them. And so this is, I think it's appropriate for us to talk a little bit about the book as we talk about your life, because they seem to overlap, right? I, but uh, but um, I've, I've purchased your book and started reading it. I haven't had a chance to finish it yet, but there it, it is well-written. It's fast-paced uh, and full of fun anecdotes. Uh, there's one of the, my favorites from uh, the early pages of the book was about uh, Idi Amin. Maybe you could just share the Idi Amin story before we jump into some more substantive discussions. Well, that's a good uh, uh, reminder of the foolishness of youth. Um, <laughs> I was in college at the University of Chicago, freshman year, a bunch of friends and I uh, all getting uh, um, um, alcoholically impaired, as the case may be. And uh, somehow we got to the idea of prank phone calls and we uh, made a phone call. Um, I'm not sure I I remember exactly where we were calling at this time, but uh, um, I uh, picked up the receiver and... uh, proceeded to try to put on some sort of horrible, phony East African accent, saying, uh, this is Idi Amin, and uh, I come from Uganda. And uh, I made uh, some other comments along the lines of uh, uh, probably referring to an atomic bomb or something, but uh, (laughs) it was just foolishness, freshman year drunkenness. And then... uh, we all kind of drifted back to our rooms in Pierce Tower, the non-existent, thank God, dorm that uh, I was in at that time. They've since torn it down. And uh, got a knock on the door uh, from the RA, a resident assistant, with the police who had come in and proceeded to march me off to the Cook County lockup for making a bomb threat and uh, scared the hell out of me. Spent the night uh, in jail in the lockup until uh, luckily I got off the next day with the help of the university lawyers with a severe admonishment uh, and uh, really learning never to do that sort of thing again. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that is one of those things you put under the heading of lesson learned, right? Uh, But let's, let's jump forward. Uh, to the, the pinnacle of your career really ended up at, at USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, where you played a senior senior role. Tell us about some of the highlights of your time there. Well, I think that uh, probably there are a number of important highlights. It's the kind of thing where uh, 
when someone asks you what's your favorite country and you end up getting stumped because each country that you serve in uh, really brings very special moments and reminders and nostalgia as you look back over time. And I did spend most of my career overseas in a range of countries between Latin America, Africa, and uh, Southwest Asia. Um, but probably uh, uh, what the time that uh, most remains with us uh, in terms of fondness and, and appreciation is uh, the last assignment in South Africa, a remarkable country of tremendous diversity that many people don't realize that, uh, you know, they may know something of the history of apartheid in South Africa, be, but be unaware of the fact that it's not just a white black thing, but in fact, South Africa is such a multiracial environment with 11 or 12 different official languages. And my family and I had deep friendships and deep affection um, in many places that we had a chance to visit and get to know in South Africa. Your, your daughter lives there now. So it, it, this isn't just a, a passing thing. In, in some ways, this is a current connection that you maintain to South That's Africa, true. right? She got married to a South African. Um, and in fact, uh, she did leave in um, uh, last summer uh, with her husband uh, to go to Europe because he got a new job in Europe. But uh, they ended up returning to South Africa to spend the holidays, and they're there now. And it, uh, from what I understand, both of them have unfortunately had their own experiences with COVID while being there. Yeah. And I don't mean to out you, but you're, you're just recovering from your own case uh, of COVID. Isn't that right? Indeed. And forgive me for the hoarse voice and all that. I had a fairly mild case, but uh, sure enough, uh, despite trying to take care all through the pandemic, um, post New Year's Eve celebrations and South Carolina and all this tripped me up. But luckily, my wife, as well as the friends that we were staying with, came back negative. But no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm almost done with my recuperation, thank God. Well, good. I'm glad that you're feeling better and that they didn't catch it. It's it's so incredibly contagious. Uh, it's spreading like, uh, like wildfire, uh, quite literally. Um, as you look back on your experiences with USAID, uh, you spent, uh, I think, over three decades uh, at USAID. Is that right? Well, strictly speaking, I spent uh, a bit over 22 years with USAID per se, but close to 15 or 20 years with different non-governmental organizations as well. I see. And your passion for all of this really, I think, grew out of your experience in the Peace Corps. Uh, tell us a little bit about your Peace Corps experience back in 1980-82. Well, Peace Corps is really what changed the direction of my life, Devin. You know, I, I joined Peace Corps because, you know, I grew up in the optimism and the political movements of the 1970s. Um, I wasn't a child of the Vietnam War. I was too young for that. But I did get, to a certain extent, politicized, radicalized by the uh, environmental movement of the um, early 70s, Earth Day, uh, no nukes campaigns. Um, I was at the University of Chicago, in fact, where the student government was very active in uh, what was then the divestiture campaign uh, about South Africa, 
trying to address apartheid there. And I always knew that I wanted to go into the Peace Corps. Um, but my expectation was I would join the Peace Corps, serve two years as a Peace Corps volunteer after college, and then I would return to the United States probably to get involved in either health policy or potentially politics. I'd been very politically active in Chicago. I'd been politically active at school with the student government and very politically active uh, as well in uh, uh, kind of good government politics in Illinois, uh, Common Cause Illinois. In fact, to drop a name, Rahm Emanuel, the new uh, confirmed ambassador to Japan, and I ran with each other quite a bit. Um, he came from quite the political family and, of course, more recently served as the mayor of Chicago. Uh, but we were involved in a lot of different political reform efforts at that time in Chicago, kind of extracurricular school activities, you might say. But uh, as it turned out, um, I went to Peace Corps and I found the experience of, as Moritz Thompson called it uh, some uh, 60, 70 years ago, living poor, living with uh, the, uh, the campesinos, the farmer peasants in rural Ecuador, getting to know their daily routines, trying to help them address the sorts of health and nutrition challenges that came through their lives, because I ended up serving in Ecuador as a rural public health volunteer, I found myself really falling in love. And uh, sure enough, uh, I came to be known for different reasons by the Minister of Health of Ecuador at that time, who asked me to stay on. Uh, somewhat amusingly, I tell the story in the book about how he had reached out to the Peace Corps director uh, to ask whether or not I could be renewed for a third year as a volunteer there. And the then Peace Corps director, who considered me to be a little bit of a thorn in his side and perhaps a little bit of a volunteer activist as well, basically responded, how shall I say politely, NFW, if you get my drift. <laughs> and uh, so the response of the Minister of Health would say, well, okay, that's fine. And the Minister of Health, Dr. Luis Trevino, proceeded to contact an important uh, nonprofit uh, private volunteer organization in Ecuador, Plan International, what was then known as Foster Parents Plan, to encourage them to pick me up as a local hire so that I would stay on. I was asked by Plan to stay on, and I thought, okay, I'll do this for a little bit longer after my Peace Corps service. But really, uh, I never went back. I had, in fact, joked a bit, Devin, uh, at the time of uh, my going into Peace Corps, uh, because I'd been politically involved, as I said, that, oh, if Ronald Reagan got elected in 1980, uh, when I was in Ecuador, I wouldn't come back until he was out of office. Well, I didn't really return to the States until perhaps the uh, middle of uh, Bush one's term. So yeah, it really became wow. a very strong vocation and a sense of commitment. Wow, I guess so. You invested a decade uh, in, in that. Uh, as you uh, reflect on, on this, and you have for your book, what are the key messages that you share in terms of lessons learned, insights gained? Well, I think a key lesson learned for me, and certainly one that... Uh, required me to go through the school of hard knocks uh, multiple times to get it into my head, 
was really the importance of truly listening to people, reflecting on what they're saying and what they're not saying, appreciating them for uh, where life has taken them and their levels of understanding, and not coming in with, a, I don't want to say an ugly American attitude, because I don't think I, I ever had that. But uh, certainly, when I started out, um, it would be fair to say that I um, had probably more than my share of that sort of paternalistic, patronizing, oh, I'm an American, I know best sort of thing, and I'm going there to help you solve your problem. And I really came to uh, a very different understanding, or at least a more sophisticated, more nuanced understanding of what that meant uh, and the importance of really uh, listening to people, joining with them on a journey of growth and development and empowerment. And, you know, those are easy catchphrases and all that, but it's something that I think I, I truly lived through the experiences I talk about in the book in Ecuador and then Bolivia and then Peru and then uh, subsequently in the rest of my career through other countries in Latin America and Africa. It, it is such a profound lesson uh, that you talk about, uh, this attitude of, of how we help. And 100% valuable, 100% valid. I, I, I wonder how we encourage, and I wonder if you'd share your thoughts and how we encourage people to undertake the kinds of service that have so often been done with what we sometimes pejoratively refer to as a white savior mentality, right? Uh, that I will ride in as the American and I will save you from your problems by leaving some money or painting your village or your church or something. And then I'll, and I'll leave and you'll, all your problems are solved because I was there. I the the like fact is, I think th th that work is often important and valued and valuable. How do we motivate people to do it? What's the mental reset that still motivates uh, Americans to help without the really genuinely wrongheaded and offensive, uh, I know better than you, attitude? You know, I think uh, it's important for people to appreciate that uh, in um, the area of international service and address addressing the palpable needs that do exist, uh, in many lower income countries around the world. There are, of course, uh, areas where humanitarian assistance, direct assistance um, to communities, to families, uh, to help them get over either a man-made emergency or a climactic disaster. Uh, there's certainly a time and place for that. And certainly there are many organizations and churches um, where the expression of generosity can be so important in terms of encouraging assistance. And, but even there, um, I think time has uh, told us, has demonstrated that uh, overly paternalistic uh, approaches to addressing those kind of emergencies can undermine the sorts of structures that you have in communities and really delay a true recovery in terms of dealing with a disaster. And one thing is a humanitarian assistance, but the other thing is longer term 
development assistance, uh, human development, where you're trying to help people um, using their resources with what assistance we can provide them, overcome the, the gaps that uh, do exist because of weaknesses in education systems, weaknesses in investment in training, uh, weaknesses in, in the area of food production and food security. And, and that's something that I think we're probably on a much more sophisticated level of understanding now than certainly we were in the 1980s, 1990s. I'd like to believe that uh, the, uh, the countries of Europe and the United States and the people who are involved in terms of charitable efforts and uh, development assistance appreciate that better now. But at the same time, I think there is also a, a, a reality that nothing quite replaces the individual experience and growth from service, as you were saying at the beginning, Devin. And that's one of the things that I do try to bring out in the book. I make reference to how a number of the, the political candidates in the last election talked about national service. And this has been something that hasn't been necessarily identified only with one party or the other. I think it's been something where there have been politicians and uh, thinkers associated with both Republicans and Democrats who have recognized that we have lost something where um, admittedly no one wants to see a return of the draft, but by not having an opportunity of national service, an actual national service obligation that young people have to go through, where they are forced to be thrown into situations where they are living with, working with, talking with, socializing with, and associating with people from very different cultural backgrounds, from very different economic backgrounds. That type of experience, I think, is so valuable in terms of allowing us all to develop a more appreciative and sophisticated sense of how to best be able to contribute generously and effectively in these situations of need. Yeah, I, I see. I see your point. Uh, well, you've accomplished a lot. You, you, your career is impressive. Uh, you're a Thank brilliant you. writer. Uh, I I truly admire you. I I wonder, Alan, if you would could share with us what you see as your superpower. Well, that is really the magic question. I I guess uh, when it comes down to it, I'd have to say that uh, I am always a glass half full kind of guy. And so I'd like to believe that my main superpower is an optimistic outlook on life. I do try to uh, turn lemons into lemonade, as the expression goes. I do try to apply that in terms of the interactions and experiences that I've had dealing with a wide range of challenges and being in circumstances that sometimes uh, weren't the easiest or the most secure. Um, I realize that uh, it's not always easy. I know that uh, my family suffered a bit in terms of the sorts of experiences that we all went through collectively and also in the times when I was off on unaccompanied service in places like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan during times of uh, uh, 
combat theater operations as well. But overall, I think that that optimism, that outlook on life is what enables me to have a certain amount of persistence and perseverance in continuing this type of service, uh, both over the course of what I've been lucky enough to have as my career and in terms of the, the ongoing efforts that I try to provide to a number of different nonprofit, non-governmental organizations. Can you think of a, an example of when, a specific case of when your optimism did shape a good outcome from your work at, at USAID or perhaps another situation? Well, one experience that comes to mind uh, would be probably from Iraq. Uh, the first time around that I was there, um, I was serving on a provincial reconstruction team um, after a series of uh, frankly, unfortunate circumstances in the bureaucracy of USAID where the job that I expected when I went out there was no longer in place. And in fact, management was looking to send me home because they weren't quite sure what to do with me since there were no vacancies at that point in what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and then uh, somewhat miraculously, I found out about an opportunity to serve in Salahadin. Someone was leaving uh, Salahadin is the province of what was known as the, the Northern Sunni Triangle, um, an area of a great deal of, at that time, violence, um, guerrilla activity, um, resistance to American occupation. Um, and yet, uh, in uh, my initial contacts with people, I found a remarkable uh, warmth and appreciation coming to me from uh, American uh, military leaders um, in that province, uh, because Salahadin, Tikrit in particular, is where this uh, major airbase was located, Spiker Air Base. It was a center not just for operations for that provincial reconstruction team um, in that part of Iraq, but also the center for the uh, Army's uh, efforts to basically reactivate the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education all through northern Iraq. And I got invited by the uh, general who was responsible at that time, General Kukulo, and the division surgeon to join uh, Army Air Forces and to travel around all of northern Iraq to serve as an emissary of uh, the type of assistance we at USAID were trying to provide in terms of reactivating and rebuilding Iraqi institutions. Uh, that was something that was unplanned for. And had we followed the structure of the official USAID plan, might not have happened. It allowed me to be able to reach communities and Iraqi leaders that USAID officers who were stuck in Baghdad uh, would not have been able to do. So it uh, really opened up a remarkable number of doors. Um, while serving in Tikrit, um, I found myself, uh, frankly, be getting a little bit of a reputation of what uh, some of the force protection, the soldiers were calling a bullet magnet, because unfortunately, there proved to be a sniper who started attacking movements. Every time we would visit uh, the Tikrit University School of Medicine, um, or other installations, uh, particularly the NGO Federation. 
And my uh, military force protection uh, uh, supporters wanted me to basically dial it back and turn it down. But I was optimistic that if we continue the outreach with these Iraqi institutions, if we enlisted Iraqi local organizations in terms of serving as partners with us and allowing them to establish meetings where I could meet with different community groups under their auspices, admittedly with military support and control, but under the auspices of the the NGO network that existed at that time, that we would be able to combat this sniper, this sniper activity, perhaps more effectively than otherwise. Um, Long story short, uh, that proved to be the case, uh, and we were able to uh, reestablish for uh, Tikrit and for that province uh, a lot of key activities, particularly in the area of farming and food production, uh, which was invaluable, I think, over time for the communities uh, that were food challenged and water challenged in that part of Iraq. Well, having established for yourself uh, that optimism is helpful, how would you coach other people who may struggle with optimism to channel it, to find it, to build it, to develop it? How, How do people learn optimism? That's a tough question. Um, part of me tells me there is an innateness to it. Um, part of me tells me that it's also a product of the types of circumstances, um, the life lessons that we go through. I think it requires uh, um, conscious efforts um, and a certain amount of uh, internal bravery to open yourself up and to show your vulnerabilities and to uh, try to uh, uh, call out on whatever sort of divine spirit, divine spirituality that um, you find yourself called to, uh, to ask for that sort of help. I think that whatever your religious faith, that uh, ability to open yourself up and either through prayer or meditation or other spiritual teachings is really key towards changing our hearts and and allowing ourselves to be able to to operate under circumstances we might not easily be able to do otherwise. That is a a profound insight, and I appreciate you sharing that. Alan, I I really thank you for taking the time to to do this, uh, to visit with me tonight, uh, and uh, really commend you for the great work you've done for your great career and for the book you've written. Um, before we wrap up, would you just take a minute and tell people how they can connect with you, whether that's social media, tell them how they can get a copy of the book, uh, and whatever else you want to share in, in, in a concluding thought. Well, thank you very much, Devin, and thank you again for having me on. Uh, certainly, I encourage uh, uh, people to uh, take a look on uh, my personal website that has a number of different links for people to be able to access the book. Uh, it's available at uh, enableenoble.net. That's E-N-A-B-L-E-E-N-N-O-B-L-E.net. And the book is available on Amazon. It's available in both English and Spanish. It's available in uh, uh, ebook. 
um, and it's gone through different promotions, uh, paperback and also now a hardcover. And uh, I was able uh, last year to record an audiobook version as well on Audible. Um, there are different promotions for it. If you're um, uh, a Kindle, uh, um, I forget uh, the term that they use it, but uh, basically a power Kindle reader, it's available free or certainly at a very economical price as a, an ebook for those that are interested. Fantastic. I can also encourage people to, uh, if they wish, to uh, uh, look out for me on uh, Facebook. I've got an author page at uh, Alan Wind Author. Uh, they can find it there. That's my uh, author's page, and I'll certainly be willing to entertain uh, requests that come that way. Uh, and uh, within the book themselves, there's a, a link that people can email if they're interested uh, as well, uh, enable, ennoble, at gmail.com. I'm always uh, interested in feedback and constructive criticism, um, whatever people care to share in terms of their own experiences. Fantastic. Well, Alan, again, thank you very much for being with us today. We commend you for your great career, and uh, we want to wish you every success in, in sharing your story with through this book. Uh, we hope that uh, this is a great chapter of your life as you do that. Devin, thank you very much. And uh, if you don't mind, if I can include one other additional plug, uh, one of the organizations I've been working with and serving now as a member of the board of directors for the last couple of years that was actually founded by a friend of mine who was herself a Peace Corps health volunteer in Ecuador is Hunger Relief International. And she's uh, the organization is actually based out in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. If people are interested, they might want to consider going to the website of hungerreliefinternational.org. And uh, Hunger Relief International supports small-scale, family-to-family, local community, local community efforts in Guatemala and Haiti, both countries of which are, of course, extremely needy. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's great work. I, I, having visited both countries, uh, I can certainly agree. Those are countries that need our help, and I commend you for supporting her efforts to, to lead uh, support for those countries because they, they certainly need them. Uh, Alan, again, thank you very much for being with us. We wish you every success. Thank you. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then, let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.